Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Destination CMO. This is a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. I'm your host, Vincent Famvan. Here at Destination CMO, we like to invite our guests to share the most important stories happening in business and technology explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Our guest today is Doug Zarkin. He's the Vice President of Chief Marketing Officer of Pearl Vision, a role that he's held since 2012. Prior to that, Doug has led assignments from everywhere like the NHL, Food Network, Warner Brothers, W Hotels, and Reebok. And his work right now is leading the brand transformation that's been recognized in Entrepreneur Magazine, which has earned him several placements on top marketer lists. His work is also currently the subject of a Harvard Business School case study on brand rejuvenation. Doug, so great to have you on the show. Wow. Can you bottle that up and send it to my dad, who I still thinks I just create ads for a living? Appreciate it. Great to <laughs> it's be the, the age-old challenge I have with my parents, too, of explaining what I actually do for work. And I feel like it's just so much easier, like if you become a lawyer or a doctor, to just explain, like, I'm a dentist. <laughs> yeah, I think he's disappointed I didn't finish my law degree, but I appreciate <laughs> being here. Yeah, absolutely. Great to have you. Like, when you think about like going into marketing, what were some of the considerations for you that kind of guided your early career? So as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do out of graduate school, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to run a business and lead a brand. This is pre-LinkedIn, not to date myself too much. So I got some great career advice from a family friend who said, look, if you eventually want to be in the conductor car, start at the end and work your way to the front. You'll understand all the roles and functions that go into running a business and a brand. You'll speak the language of all those roles and functions. But most importantly, when you're in the front of the car, you'll be able to be in a position to know how to motivate those people in roles and functions. And so for me, where I am right now as the CMO of Pearl is, I think, a perfect blend of both art and science. It allows me to take an approach of understanding our consumer at an emotional level, not just a rational level. And then most importantly, what I like to say is to use data for good. Doug, tell me a little bit about, I've heard you say, you talk about thinking human. When Mm -hmm. it comes to marketing, Like, what does that really mean to be able to think human? So we live in an age of data, data, data. You know, there's an expression, if it isn't measured, it isn't meaningful. And when it comes to really understanding your consumer, you could get really caught behind the screen where you're understanding your consumer strictly by what the data is telling you. And what I found is that you lose the human perspective. You lose that incredible understanding of the art of marketing. A marketer has to get out from behind the computer and go experience their brand in three dimensions. And if you're a service business, you have to observe, observe the interaction between the most important marketing tool in your toolbox, which are your frontline associates and your consumer. And that really allows you to shape a perspective. If you ask 100 consumers, maybe 90 of them will tell you that they love puppies. But when it comes time to adopting a puppy, that number drops because of all the responsibilities that go with it. So I use that as an analogy to really 
kind of encourage my team to not just do dial my numbers when it comes to understanding our audience, but to get out, watch them, listen, learn, pick up on nuances that maybe aren't reported in a qualitative or a quantitative survey. Those little bits can really help unlock tremendous growth. It is what you're talking about there is so powerful. I've worked in large corporations where it's clear that those in corporate in the headquarters in the ivory tower don't understand some of the experiences that are happening on the front line or with their customers. And then you take a look at other brands where they're so customer focused that it really is something that like separates your long-term sustainable brands versus those who may have hit product market fit early in a journey, but end up seeing stagnant growth over time because they just fall further and further away from their customers. You know, I miss those ivory tower days. I'm in the basement of my home in my home office. So how have the mighty fallen? But yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's, I think, an important part of leading an effective team, a high powerful team, a high performing team is to encourage them to really realize that your target audience are not just a set of numbers. They're a set of emotions, attitudes, feelings, and behaviors. And the best way to understand that is to actually experience it. Yeah. So as marketers think about what type of a marketer they want to be, it seems like there's been these two camps that have built up almost to an, an extreme, like a radicalized extreme, where if you're too much of a brand marketer, that's a bad thing. If you're too much of a performance marketer, that's a bad thing. Like, how do you think about like what makes a good marketer in general? I love that question. You know, are you a performance marketer or a brand marketer? And I think it's probably one of the biggest full of shit points that plagues our industry. And I'll tell you why, because you can't be a performance marketer if you don't understand that when you show up on page one of Google, your brand has to mean something in order for it to perform. And you're not going to build brand through paid search. You can build action, but that brand meaning happens in the brand side. On the flip side, you can't be this ethereal brand marketer who wants to create these beautiful pieces of art that don't drive performance, that don't motivate a consumer to take the action we want when we want them to take it. And it's interesting. I was teaching my daughter's high school class a couple of weeks ago, and I asked them to give me what do they think the definition of marketing is? And I got a lot of like great 30 line answers. I'm like, marketing is at its core the following. Marketing is the ability to get into the mindset of a consumer and motivate them to do what you want them to do when you want them to do it. Full stop. And think about how arrogant that statement is. But in order to be successful at that arrogance, you actually have to embody a tremendous amount of humility. And the reason is because in order to lead a consumer down a path, you have to listen to that consumer understand what they're saying, figure out what they're not saying, and then kind of put it all in a blender and spit out a layered plan that has a strong performance element, but also doesn't lose sight of the fact that consumers make emotional decisions before they make those rational choices. And you can't drive emotional consideration, emotional decisions through things like paid search or display. Yeah. And like the other thing that comes to mind is like right place for the right time Sure, as well. There might be different brands that are at different journeys, whether you're at a company that's trying to figure out product market fit versus you're at a company like the experience that you went through at Victoria's Secret, scaling something to a $400 million brand. Like there are different things that are necessary, but I don't think you can 
simply dismiss it, like you said, where, oh, brand marketing doesn't matter. Like we're going to drive straight for return off of clicks. But then you go and you look at some of my favorite marketing in the world is Coca-Cola. When you take a look at like having an emotional connection with folks, I don't know why, but it's those bears every December when I see it just brings me straight back to childhood holiday memories. And then on the opposite, getting somebody to take a specific action when they are bottom of funnel abandoned cart is an absolute time for some of the traits of performance marketing to come in. Along your career journey, if you take a look at a brand like Pink, for instance, going from test market to scaling it. How did you think about your strategies and kind of like the roadmap throughout different phases of growth? That's an interesting question about an interesting brand at an interesting period of time. I think as we looked, and I'm thinking back, it's been over a decade since I worked on that business. But from what I recall, we saw an opportunity to really bring an incremental consumer into the Victoria's Secret family. At VS, there was this, what they called the wheel of sexy. And at the top of the wheel was sort of the supermodel sexy, which were the angels and this sort of unattainable beauty. We looked at pink. One of the insights that I think I brought to the table was understanding that Victoria's Secret pink was about real sexy. It was about less overt and more of a feeling, more of a cute and clever. If you remember the flagship product in the brand was the sweatpants with the word pink on the butt. And there was a bit of tongue in cheekness to that. And we moved forward, really trying to appreciate the fact that we were looking to bring in a consumer who maybe at the time was a little put off or intimidated by what Victoria's Secret as a brand was looking to communicate. But we were working with an owner founder who at the time had a very different vision for who and what he thought should be wearing that brand. And so it was about trying to make marginal gains, expanding into the beauty world, building into the assortment world, obviously leveraging the incredible technology of some of the intimate apparel that Victoria's Secret made and bringing it to this younger consumer in a way that wasn't necessarily overt sexy, but allowed them to kind of relate to it and unlock their inner sexy. And I think we did a pretty good job of it. I was only there for about two years. And I think in the time we were able to bring a fresh perspective to at the time, which was a very one dimensional brand, which was VS. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you look back at your time at the various companies or brands that you've spent time with, how do you look back and think about success in that role? Or when you're going into a new role at a new company, how do you map out what success looks like at the end of your journey with that organization? So on a personal level, did I make a difference? Did I make a difference both as whatever my title was at the time, but also as a human being? And I can look at the brands that I've worked on and pinpoint certain things that were either introduced during my time or that are still legacy items that remain that I'm proud to say incubated under my leadership. From a professional standpoint is, is did I drive results? Did I increase profitability? Did I increase sales? Did I drive key metrics? And I think it's important as a marketer to recognize that marketing without operations is nothing more than words on paper. So it's hard for me to say I did this as an individual. It's about building an incredible team of marketing superheroes, number one, and then two, really forging very strong relationships with your operations partner, because strategy without execution is nothing more than words on paper. Yeah. One of the, I think, big traits of a good marketer is being able to collaborate 
with your partners, whether that's sales teams, whether it's operations teams. 100%. And it's collaboration, not consensus. Can't get 10 people to walk outside wherever you're watching this from and determine whether it's hot or cold. Okay. Cause it's completely subjective. Marketing, much of it is subjective. So you're really not looking for consensus. You're looking for collaboration. You're looking for key insights to understand the challenges that exist, potentially bring things forward that unlock. But certainly a marketer has to be prepared to say, you know what, as the expert, this is what we're going to do. That absolutely makes sense. You've gone and worked throughout a lot of different industries and you've worked on campaigns on everything from high-end premium hotels to food network and obviously in the vision space. There's oftentimes a misconception that you have to work within the industries where you have experience and some people will niche in to a, an industry for their entire career. Like, What advice would you give for somebody who's interested in making a switch or interested in learning a new space that they're not currently in? Well, that's another one that kind of falls at the intersection of dumb and stupid. To look at everybody who has built a specific vertical and to say you have to have worked in that vertical to be successful is ridiculous. Because what is the common thread? Your ability as a marketer to get into the mindset of your consumer, and as I said earlier, to motivate that consumer to take action is an unbelievably transferable skill, regardless of your vertical. I never worked in beauty before I worked in the beauty business. I never worked in the intimates business before I worked in the intimates business. And look, I'm a guy, so I didn't wear makeup and I didn't wear bras and panties. So it actually made me a smarter marketer because I was forced to really be very inquisitive, to ask a lot of good questions and to listen. In optical, it's a very complex category. And certainly those that have worked in it have some advantages, but I didn't come from optical. And I'd like to think that I've made a difference in Pearl. I'd like to think my consumer-centric mentality and experience in marking high-end products and services was more of what has allowed me to help unlock growth for the brand than just the fact that did I come from another eyewear or eye care company. I think you brought up a few really great points there. And like something that really stuck to me is I think the trait that allows somebody to be able to make that shift is like you said, are you inquisitive? Are you going to be the person who's going to be humble, ask the questions and really be aggressive about learning the nuances of that particular industry? I think that learning agility and the reminder that throughout your career, like you're never done learning is such a good kind of key point to somebody who's making that switch and helping them be successful. I mean, some of that is some of that is the fault of human resources when they're developing a job spec. Are you looking for somebody who has had success in building a variety of different verticals? I would say that is more of a translatable skill than somebody who just comes out of the individual category or product that you're looking to fill because you can drink too much of your own Kool-Aid. I mean, one of the reasons that I think we've been successful is that we have a combination of internal and external partners. When I'm looking to compete for share of mine against my target audience, I'm not looking to compete just against other optical brands. I'm looking to compete against all of the other things that are going on in that target audience's lives and minds. And I'm competing for share of wallet, not just against other optical brands. I'm looking to compete against it for all the other trade-offs that that consumer could be spending their money on. So taking a very myopic look at your consumer, I actually think is a recipe for disaster because you ignore the cultural nuances that are going on in their life. I completely agree with that. And I think if you get stuck inside of the world that is 
one industry for the past few decades, you may miss some of the best marketing trends that could be applicable to the brand that you're working with could come from a completely different industry, especially in a world today where we're seeing technology just advancing so quickly that some of those lessons learned to be able to grow your company are not going to come from within that industry. And if not, only- not at all. Agree. Agree. And it's one of the things, one of the reasons why when it comes to my own personal learning and development, I'm a big fan of going to conferences, not just to speak, but to listen. You mm-hmm. pick up one nuance. I mean, I'll yep. give you a really quick example. One of the opportunities for Pearl Vision that I'm most bullish on is our foray into the U.S. Hispanic community. 60% of vision issues in the U.S. Hispanic community go undiagnosed. 40% of Hispanic kids have an undiagnosed vision issue. And if you think about it, that community is so much tied to strong relationships, both within the household, but also with the medical community. I mean, there's a high reverence in the U.S. Hispanic community for medical professionals. And yet when we started to do some research on it, we recognized that there were 20 million searches in Spanish about our category and nobody was really rising to the top. Mm. And I had gone to a conference soon after sort of making a decision that this is something we wanted to pursue. I got some great insight from other brands doing and leaning into this marketplace, not brands that we compete with at all, not even categories that were relevant in one bit, but just the way that those marketing leaders and those professionals were leaning in and sort of dissecting the audience and figuring out how to listen and also how to lead proved to be really successful for us in bringing them back. And now the U.S. Hispanic community is one of the major initiatives that's allowing us to be and grow the way we're growing. Yeah, what a great story of being able to catch on to that nugget, be able to pull that all the way through and and apply. I think the opposite of that mentality that I've seen some marketers fall into a trap on is to think, well, this could only work for the other company. This wouldn't work for us. And so often you hear companies say, our company, our business is just so different that something like that just wouldn't work here. But being able to stay open-minded to that could unlock a different possibility. It's a great sort of process to go through to figure out if something can or could work. You've got to kind of look at the consumer, look at your brand and find out in that Venn diagram, what are the intersections? And and for Mm -hmm. us, it was very simple. Our consumer facing proposition is the notion that nobody cares for eyes more than Pearl. And if you go a level lower, it's because we believe in caring about your eyes means caring about the person behind the eyes. And so then you look at the U.S. Hispanic community and you realize just the incredible family unit. It's a highly communicative audience, highly relationship driven, more so than general market. And it leans so perfectly when you look into the genetic predispositions for vision acuity issues. Then you look at what we stand for, where our footprint is in particular, because we're a neighborhood based brand. And fortunately, we are in those neighborhoods that have high Hispanic density that I almost kind of want to say to myself, God, I wish I thought about it. And we're just scratching the surface. I'm very excited about our continued progress in that market. And I'm excited about, I mean, the the real impact that when you think about the role of marketers, yes, there's long-term brand product, you know, corporate growth, but the impact story that you're talking about, I'm just thinking about my childhood having glasses and the point before I had glasses where it wasn't just a vision problem for me. It was a learning problem. Well, it's funny. The most common misdiagnosis of a learning disability is actually a vision acuity issue. 
yeah, or vice versa. 100%. I don't think I said it correctly. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the big challenges that we all faced as parents during the pandemic is that vision acuity issues are most often noticed first by a teacher. Mm-hmm. But when you're staring behind a screen like you and I right now, I, if I can't see you, I lean in. So right. teachers didn't have the ability to really notice those vision acuity issues. And that provided us an opportunity and a responsibility to reinforce and educate the parents that starting in age five, a child should have a comprehensive eye exam. And that really to unlock a child's potential, because 80% of what a child learns is through their eyes, ensuring that they're seeing clearly is an incredible step forward for them. Yeah. And I see that as like such a perfect example of bringing a social mission and a social purpose to the work that occurs at a company and making it more than just about shareholder return at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, Vincent, it's wonderful to be able to do good and be profitable at the same time. And there, mm-hmm. there's no reason that brands and marketers should be ashamed of making a good living and being profitable with their brands. So as long as you're doing good, yep. it's when you're sketchy and nefarious in what you're doing and you're profitable that you have to kind of wake up every morning and look at yourself in the mirror and say, is this really what I want to do with my life? Yeah, um, could- I'm blessed to work in a category in a business that's actually doing a hell of a lot of good. And if we do it well and we deliver an amazing experience certainly we should be able to charge a price for it that allows us to be profitable. Absolutely. I mean, I think of companies like REI, for example, where Black Friday, Cyber Monday, any retailer would be itching to try to grab coverage. And yet the brand every single year on Black Friday that always gets national headlines coverage is the store that's closed, is REI, because they're encouraging folks to go outdoors. I mean, it's the Chick-fil-A model. They've mm -hmm. they've never opened on Sunday. Imagine, imagine how much money they're leaving on the table, but they don't care because it speaks to their culture. It speaks to what they represent to consumers. And that's why their trust scores off the charts. And that's why they're going to get me on Monday regardless. (laughs) When you talk about your experience with redefining brands and rejuvenation, how does that come to life? When is it the right time to start looking at that? So a couple different layers to that question. I think the how really requires you to take a couple step back, steps back in order to take a step forward. And one of the tactics that I employed when I came to Pearl was I did what I call the X's tour. In life, I don't know if you're married, but when you were single and you were dating, if you ever wanted to know about yourself on your best and your worst day, talk to somebody who dumped you. And that's the same case in business. If you ever want to know about yourself as a brand, talk to somebody who broke up with you, talk to somebody who fired you as a brand. And for us, I talked to patients that fired us. I talked to franchisees that didn't renew because I wanted to understand what the expectations were. What did we promise? What were we good at? Because we're a successful brand. We've been in business since 1961. We're doing something right. But where were the pain points? What weren't we doing? And it was that unique combination of what the DNA of this brand is and where we were good and then getting rid of some of the things that we weren't good at that allowed us to really revitalize the power of Pearl Vision. And I'm super proud of it. I'm super proud of the fact that it's like buying a house that's terribly decorated. You have to look past the bad choices and say, the bones of this house are great. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Pearl, the bones of this business were great. Mm -hmm. Certainly some rooms needed to be redone. Certainly we had some construction to do. We had to build out some things. We redid the backyard. If I'm going to stay with this analogy for a little (laughs) bit longer. I think today as the number one I care brand on entrepreneurs, top 500 franchise brands as I think the number 38 brand on that list as a brand that has grown faster in the last five years than it did in its entire history. 
a brand that has solidified its trust with a four, nine out of five rating on Google, all these great accolades. We figured out why people come to us and it's not because of aggressive deals and promotions. It's because nobody cares for eyes more than Burl. That simple. Yeah. And, and I, what I love about being able to pull all of that through when you talk about like the different groups, the different stakeholders, so many times, some marketers will only think of their end user customers as being their customers. And when you're talking about nobody cares more, you're talking about bringing that experience even to the franchisee owner. Look, our franchisees really power Pearl. I mean, we have about 20% of our look, our eye care centers are corporately owned, 80% are franchise owned. And you know they are our customers. We have an internal constituency. And then obviously we have those in the community. But our franchisees are living, breathing embodiments of our brand DNA. My job is to help provide them a playbook to use to guide them in their journey of really establishing trust at the community level. And if we do it well, we're great. But you know, you're as good as your worst location. And certainly there are still opportunities to improve in certain areas. Yeah. For somebody early in their career, maybe perhaps potentially starting their marketed career, like what advice would you give to that person building their foundation? So I think to me, you have two pathways and it's not about a right way or a wrong way. It's about a way. You could make the argument that you want to go to a smaller brand where you can get your feet wet and do more. On the other hand, I started out in advertising. I worked on General Mills for a number of years and I learned essentially a second MBA and how to build a brand from my time there, even though I was at the end of the communications train. You've got to figure out where you believe you can start building a foundation because Look, I hate to say this to those on the podcast that are maybe in college. College doesn't teach you the job that you want. College is hopefully going to give you an insight into the career that you may choose. You don't know how to do the job until you've done it. Okay. And so I wouldn't stress yourself out with, oh my God, I want to do, this is the job. First of all, it's your first job. Secondly, you probably have an idea of that job if you did an internship, but it's a little bit different when you're getting paid real money and you're ultimately accountable for it. I think it's incredibly important to figure out what gets you excited in the morning. I thought about going into the world of institutional sales and finance, but I realized I wasn't going to make a difference as Doug. I was going to make a difference if I analyzed charts and graphs really well. Mm-hmm. Marketing, advertising allowed me to make a difference as a person. It allowed me to really lean into my passion to connect with people on an emotional level. I have a hell of a lot of fun doing it. And what I love about it is that every day is different because your consumer is constantly evolving. And if you're deaf to those evolutions, you're going to lose. If you're open-minded to those evolutions, you're going to win. I love that you're talking about kind of like no decision being permanent. You know, yes, there are careers where licenses are required. You mentioned earlier being married. I am married, two daughters. But, you know, if I'm taking one of my daughters to a pediatrician, I'd prefer that that person have some type of a medical degree. (laughs) You think? uh, Preferably. But, you know, in marketing, careers are oftentimes not linear. They kind of zigzag all over the place. And some of the best marketers that I know their time outside of marketing actually made them a stronger marketer because of their experience taking Mm. different roles because of their experiences going to the large company that I know at one point in my career, I was on a team that scaled a product from 1 million customers up to 60 million customers in a matter of three years. And that was a ride that I will never forget. And also it's a ride that's a little bit blurry for me because it went so fast, but that experience, then being able to jump back to a smaller stage startup, 
showed me kind of like, what does the end of the journey look like? And what are we building towards in a really mature organization where we have thousands of people working on this, not dozens of people? And so at the beginning of my career, to your point, though, there is no way that I could have like looked ahead and like predicted where I wanted to be. And like, called you don't have track. to know. I mean, look, if you're fortunate to know the destination when you start the journey, great. You're lucky. But it's okay to go on the journey and keep moving. As long as you're not moving in a circle, you're making progress, <laughs> right? So take a step forward. Sometimes you have to take a step to the side in order to take a step forward. And, you know, I've had that happen in my career as well. But your quest to be a better leader, to be a better marketer, to be a better human being, it's a constant daily journey. Pieces of input can come from anywhere. They don't come from textbooks. They certainly don't come from flow charts or Excel charts. They come from really listening. If you listen, it's amazing what you can pick up and it becomes that much more effective to lead. Yeah, that's uh, powerful advice right there. So you were in well into this new year. Right. A lot of different trends up ahead of us. We have a lot of discussion about recessions from economists. We have at the end, right at the tail end of last year, we had OpenAI drop chat GPT and people are talking about that as a fourth renaissance. Like, what do you think the things that marketers should be keeping an eye on this upcoming year? Wow. Is that a loaded question, my friend? So I think there is a real need to focus on what I call the basics, you know, the must and the needs not the coulds and the woods and not the nice to haves. And the reason why I say that is because last year was anything but predictable. It was anything but stable. This time last year, we were dealing with Omicron. Okay. We were dealing with massive, massive resignations across every vertical. And we were actually dealing with some pretty bad weather issues. On top of that, we have the currency issues, which is really another way of saying we started to see the beginning of a recession. So now we're anniversarying that. And it's easy in some respects to be very bullish and say, oh, I'm comping over complete misery and it's not as miserable. So my business is going to be great. So let me throw a ton of money. I think you got to be cautiously optimistic. I, on Pearl, am, am very careful to ensure that we have, to quote Al Gore, a lockbox of dollars that allow us to either deal with shortfalls or feed opportunities in the market. We're being very careful to focus as much as we can on flawless execution was so much time spent in trying to figure out what to do that if you don't spend equal or greater time on actually doing it, again, it's just great plans on paper that didn't come to fruition. I'm trying to really think hard about what are the key strategic bets that are going to allow us to win. But if you think about it, if you're doing anything more than four or five things, you're spending less than 20 to 25% of your time on it. Can you really make a difference when you're spending 20 to 25% or less than 20 to 25% on anything, pretty damn hard, unless you've got a revolutionary product or service. So being choiceful, being humble, but also being optimistic. Yeah, it's a good reminder in terms of just going back to basics, but also just the very real law of diminishing returns. You know, in a year where you might not have budgets to run you know, the experiments that you want to run, you know, sometimes that's a good thing just to stay really, really focused. And I mean, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. One of the tools that's come back with a vengeance is direct mail, yeah. you know, and that's our fault as marketers. Cause we were so crazy about, Oh my God, email, email, email. Most consumers actually have a separate email address that they use for business contacts. And then they have their personal, personal email address. Yep. We took way too much advantage of email. And now we're finding that what I call snail mail is becoming really effective because brands really walked away from it. 
And if you develop the right mix of creativity and efficiency, that combined with email can really allow for strong ROI. Truth be told, in September of last year, I made my first purchase off of direct mail where I had never seen a digital ad for this product. And it's a product that's called Trim Lights. It's a permanent Christmas lights that are installed onto your house. They hit me with the right postcard. I looked at it and I thought about hysterical, how much, man. I thought about how much I hate being on the roof when it's cold in the winter. But putting up the lights is not too bad. It's taking down the lights in January that I really, really hate. But it's the first product that I could really point to and remember. I had never heard about the product category, didn't know that sure. it existed. And it was one single piece wait, of direct mail that got me. Wait, wait till you start getting all those direct mail pieces for like blinds and shades, <laughs> things that you never thought about. You'll go crazy, you know, putting <laughs> automatic Bluetooth enabled window shades. You're like, that's really cool. Let me do that. No, it's not really cool. Just you got to slow your roll. There's only, there's only so many apps that you need on your phone. Really not manually put up or put down my window shades. So be careful with what you get in your mailbox. <laughs> totally fair. Totally fair. Doug, such a pleasure to be able to chat with you on this show. For folks who want to learn more, follow your story, where's the best place to connect? Yeah. So you can get me on Twitter at, at Doug Zarkin or Instagram at, at Doug Zarkin. And if you want to ping me on LinkedIn, I'll do my best to respond. Again, I'd encourage everybody to look at podcasts like this as sources of input. Nothing I say is going to direct you to do something either way. It, it shouldn't. It's a source of input. Again, there is no right way. There is no wrong way. You've got to chart a way. And hopefully you're taking advantage of this amazing information highway that we're all on with great people like Vincent putting out content and figuring out nuggets to help you craft the course that you want to go on. I absolutely appreciate that. You know, when I think back like early in my career, I had to go really seek out this information. We weren't living in this age where you have content creators that could just put things out on YouTube for the same cost as a Shopify subscription. And today's marketer, there's so much information out that I agree. I, I miss to an extent the conferences and like the large sure. gatherings pre-pandemic. At the same time, like we're living in an age where you're just a podcast episode away from, from being able to understand how another brand in another bring, industry bring, bring is Bring back the learning. Dewey Decimal system in the card catalog. When you're <laughs> library, right? It's amazing what you have. And, and again, challenges for everybody to figure out information is only as good as the source you get it from. So if something we've talked about today resonates with you, fantastic. If something we've talked about today, you're like, that guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. That's okay too. You're going to find the sources of input that connect with you on an intellectual and an emotional level. And I think that's the beauty of what brands like yours are doing, which are getting leaders together to share their thoughts and their thinking. And it's up to leaders like us to process through it and figure out where we want to go. Yeah. And it's up to, you know, it's our responsibility to pay it yep. forward, pay it forward Great. to the next generation of marketers. For sure. For Thank sure. you so much, Doug. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.